It's Imogen from Square Peg. Somewhat paradoxically, you've heard on this podcast often how the founders that we work with rarely start their journey with the intention of building a business. Mostly, they become obsessed with solving a problem that's giving them grief and end up starting a company to solve it at scale. And of all the founders I know, the person who probably saw themselves as the least likely to build a tech startup is our guest today, Manuri Gunawadina. Because Manuri had a very clear path set for herself. She was on track to becoming a neurosurgeon. And the story of how she got from the operating room to a tech startup with a team of almost 20 is an incredible story. Because she's now building a tech platform that radically accelerates the speed at which new treatments and medications get to market. Stay with us. Meet Manuri. I was born in Sri Lanka. I lived in Thailand for a year when I was one year old while my dad studied there and then moved to Australia at three and actually moved to Brisbane. So I grew up in Brisbane. I think that was probably one of my earlier memories because I was really into American TV shows like Sesame Street and Barney and I thought we were moving to America essentially is what my mom told me. So We ended up in Brisbane and I was like, well, where's Sesame Street? This is just a total dupe. My family's very sciencey. My mom was a science teacher. My dad studied agriculture, so he was like a PhD in plants. From a childhood perspective, I was always surrounded by people that really had an interest in science. And though she was surrounded by sciencey people, she doesn't remember feeling particularly gifted or even interested in anything science-related. That was until one day when she picked up an autobiography that changed her life. It was by a guy called Ben Carson, who was actually a neurosurgeon in America. And he tells a story of how he came to becoming a neurosurgeon because he grew up in poverty in Detroit. He wasn't very smart, but it, it was a really interesting book. And I read it when I was 10 and I was like, oh, I want to be a neurosurgeon. That sounds so cool. And because he talks about separating conjoined twins at birth. The book described the brain and different parts of it and the surgeries. And I was like, wow, that sounds like such an awesome job. And so I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. This is a pretty extraordinary decision for a 10-year-old to make, but I think it gives you some insight into how determined Manuri is and was. And I guess I was really also very fixated on becoming it. That's probably what pushed me into becoming academic because I was like, well, I've got to get the grade to make the cut. And so I got really into science and physics because I was like, oh, this is a really interesting subject area. And I liked physics because it was all about problem solving. I remember we had assignments on problems that didn't actually have solutions and our physics teachers didn't have the answer. So it was like this really interesting project. And funnily enough, in year 12, I got really into physics that I got an offer to go to Caltech and do physics in year 12 and completely leave the path of wanting to be a surgeon. It was a very interesting sort of crossroads that I approached in year 12. And I was like, well, Caltech, that's in the US near Silicon Valley. It would have been a really interesting path to take. But I was like, no, I just want to be a neurosurgeon. And so having set her mind to neurosurgery, Manuri got the grades and headed to med school, leaving sunny Brisbane behind. And though she was this super bright, vivacious kid with an eight-year goal to be a brain surgeon, She did what most teenagers do when they get to uni. For me, I was very academic in high school and, you know, lived at home, very sheltered. 
went to med school in Sydney and it was my first glimpse of freedom. So my first year of med school was pretty, you know, outrageous and I just sort of made it through. And as you progress through, it can get intense and you do get put through the ringer. But yeah, my experience started out like, hey, look at all this freedom. And then, no, I actually have to knuckle down again. To gain experience and learn about the many career paths in medicine, med students get rotated into different specialties. You may end up in pediatrics, looking after the tiniest people in the world, or in the geriatric ward, looking after the oldest. But Manuri had her heart out in neurology and brain surgery at that. And so for the most part, she tried to optimize for experiences that exposed her to people's brains in the most literal sense. So I remember seeing my first brain surgery. I was like, wow, this is so cool. So I went and did a few placements in that. And then I actually ended up doing a, an internship at John Hopkins, which is where Ben Carson ended up. And so I remember I was in the corridor. I saw a photo of him and I took a selfie. I sent it to my mom. I was like, oh my God, how cool is this? That was an awesome experience. It was in Baltimore where there's actually a lot of you know, crime and violence from shootings and stuff like that. So the cases that you saw are really, really cool from a neurosurgery perspective, not so much from a, a people perspective. But yeah, it was, it was interesting. And I guess it reaffirmed for me, this is what I really want to do. When I speak to friends that were or are junior doctors, mostly I find that there are three things in common. The first is what we just heard from Manuri. It's this total wonderment about the way that the body works and how medicine serves it. The second is how exhausting the program is. It's big days, long nights, and endless shifts. And the third is an experience where they just get thrown in at the deep end. They're handed a patient, or a case file, or a sewing kit, or in Manuri's case, a man with a baseball bat injury. As a med student, you're pretty like low down on the ranks. So usually you just kind of stand around and you're quite useless and oftentimes you get in the way. I remember one day all the residents were busy on cases and they had an emergency come in and it was a guy who'd been hit by a baseball bat, so he had a bleed. And essentially what you do with bleeds is you you open up the skull and you kind of suck out the clot that's happening and then you cauterize it so it stops bleeding. So it's actually not that complex as a procedure, but I remember the resident was like, hey, do you want to do this? Because I've got to run between the two theatres and there's a complex case next door. So I remember that was one of my first procedures. I got to cut open the skin, got to take off the skull, cauterize the bleed. It was really, really cool. And then see the guy afterwards and I was like, whoa, the brain is, it's such a fascinating organ. Just think of every part of it and how much it affects us as humans. So yeah, I was like, this is all I want to do. And beyond actual brain surgery, which is a pretty neat skill to have up your sleeve, Minori was learning lots about how to communicate with people. I think it um, really exposed you to a broad range of people and helped develop those empathy skills because you really need to have good bedside manner to make people feel comfortable. And especially when you're you know, sitting in situations where people are being delivered bad news or they've got a life-changing diagnosis or prognosis, you need to be able to empathize with what those people are going through. And I think seeing so many cases over time and seeing the effect that different conditions had on people's lives, I think it really did help build out deeper empathy skills. In her fourth year of training, Manuri spent a year in a neuro-oncology lab researching personalised medicine for brain cancer. 
by using genome sequencing data to predict a patient's sensitivity to chemotherapy. If this sounds technical, that's because it is. And it was here that Minuri came face-to-face with one of medicine's biggest problems. One of the teams in the lab was running a clinical trial with Duke University, and it was on a vaccine therapy that was happening. And I thought, hey, this is really, really cool. I'd love to get involved and see what it's all about. And that's when I saw actually the first struggle around finding patients for trials. So only two patients ended up on that actual clinical trial that we were running. And I thought, hey, this is really weird. Why are we struggling so hard to find patients? Um, And they're only coming from certain clinicians. And then like in clinic, I'd see the same sort of patients struggle to access clinical trials in this space. And that's when I first got really interested because I was like, well, we're doing all this research, um, trying to find treatments. But it seems by the time the research gets to a stage where it's at a clinical trial, there are all these operational barriers to actually progressing. But if clinical trials are inefficient, And if people can't access trials and pharma companies can't access people, there's this huge blocker here, which is preventing all these treatments from getting out there. So it doesn't matter how much work we do on the front end. If none of it's being pushed through, we can't find medications unless we solve this problem. On the face of it, it seems illogical that such an important process hadn't been digitized. But the further Manuri looked into clinical trial recruitment, the harder and more complex it revealed itself to be. So I think the key is understanding that clinical trials are so essential for us getting medication and treatments to market and and making them commercially available. So, you know, my exposure was seeing potential new treatment and treatment in the cancer space that we were trying to get out to market and then the barriers and delays that occur. I spent a lot of time on this problem and especially looking at it from a patient perspective, like okay, people aren't finding our trial, but how do people go about finding clinical trials in general if they have a condition? Okay, your options are you happen to know the best specialist or you're navigating Google and these really complex registries. The biggest contextualization for everyone right now is COVID, right? And us trying to find a vaccine. So there's a process that these treatments have to go through. But the issue is we need to find patients to be able to test the efficacy of these treatments. And oftentimes for chronic conditions or oncology, you need patients that have very particular conditions and very particular eligibility that sit within those conditions. So they need to have Crohn's disease, but they can't also have an existing infection or they can't be pregnant. There are restrictions around what a patient can look like to go onto a clinical trial. Where I first saw issues around the current existing market is that it's so dependent on a clinician knowing and navigating this. So, you know, as a clinician, you have to, one, know the entire eligibility of a clinical trial and then be able to find enough participants to, to enter a trial. So it's a very manual process and it's like one of the biggest blockers when it comes to us actually delivering new drugs. And like all founders whose curiosity takes them to weird Wikipedia pages and into rabbit holes of dependencies, Manuri's focus slowly began to shift from mastering neurosurgery to solving a flaw in the medical system. At first, it was never like, hey, I want to start a company and and build something. It was like, whoa, what exists? What's out there? I read the book Zero to One by Peter Thiel, and I was like, oh, what's startup? So I started looking at this space, getting kind of interested in it. And then I had known a guy called Iran, who was a doctor turned software engineer. And I actually, approached him and was like, hey, you've got a really interesting background. I've been reading about these startup things in tech and 
seems quite interesting. You're now a software engineer and you used to do medicine. I've got this problem. How do you think we could solve for it? At first, I was like, hey, can we build a platform for patients to find trials and, and make it easy? And when I approached Iran about the problem, he'd actually had a few pharma companies mention this problem and how they could build a platform to help patients find trials. And Iran actually introduced me to the world of health tech and Verily, Google, Jessica Mega, who used to be a leading cardiologist, who's now the chief medical officer at Google. And so I started sort of reading more books, seeing companies in the healthcare space. And I think I went, this is kind of interesting. Maybe there's something here. And maybe instead of waiting for a solution, maybe we can build one. And it was at this moment that the vision for Health Match began to crystallize. The starting point for Health Match was around helping patients find clinical trials and connect with clinical trials. And then we saw that this is a massive market when it comes to pharma and biotech. 80% of clinical trials don't make it past that recruitment phase. They either fail or they're prolonged so long that you know the economics don't make sense. People run out of their patents, so on. So when looking at this space, I think it became really interesting that there are so many inefficiencies in the drug development pipeline. And it all starts with the fact that healthcare is so old school. The way that we collect data in healthcare is really messy, convoluted, not structured. It's really hard to gain insight. It's really hard to know where patients are, which areas to focus on. So I think the big vision for Health Match is how do we help accelerate drug development as a whole? The starting point for that is helping patients connect with clinical trials, matching them to clinical trials. The other part of it is helping industry realize like where to do research. We're collecting structured medical data from day one. So we have insights into like where patients are based, which condition areas to focus on, how to optimize clinical trials so that they're accelerated. So I think ideally, you know, it's a global problem. We want to be a global company and we want to be a company that at the end of the day helps accelerate drug development. Australia's reputation as being a vibrant place to build a startup had been growing steadily for some years. And in 2017, finally turned the head of a global media giant, TechCrunch, who with much fanfare brought their pitch competition, Startup Battlefield, to Sydney, offering the winner $25,000 and a trip to San Francisco. And then we entered TechCrunch, which was happening in November, and we needed an MVP. So it sort of was like, okay, let's just build an MVP version of what Health Match could look like. At that point, I didn't even know what an MVP was or like any of these terms. It was really just figuring it out. And then TechCrunch was quite interesting because it was the first exposure to like, what is a pitch? How do you even describe the business that you're building? And so I think it was really definitely a catalyst because I saw Melanie Perkins, saw some amazing founders and some speakers from the Valley. And so I think because we then won TechCrunch, it was a trip to San Francisco afterwards. And that was really like, wow, look at this world of people doing really cool things Minori glossed over that part, but just in case you missed it, she won, taking out the top spot and heading to the US to network. I went to a few events there, and I think it was around Christmas time because TechCrunch happened in November. I ended up at a Christmas party, and I was one of three women. And um, I remember speaking to one of the other women there, and she was like, what's your background? What are you doing? I was like, hey, I've got this startup. Gave her the spiel, the sort of pitch around it and she's like oh that's really interesting like we should grab coffee and she happened to be the 
head of IP and litigation at Google and it was pretty cool. She ran the Wayo case and I went and grabbed coffee with Catherine the next day and she was like, hey, if you're raising around, like I'd love to be an angel investor. It was like such an exhilarating experience. And as with all things, when you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. And that something else was starting to loom quite large in Manuri's future. Med school started in like February or January and I had to come back. And I was like, oh, I'm in the middle of this round. I almost completed it, but do I delay med school or do I go back and finish the round? And that was sort of the, the point in which I had to make the decision. And I thought, look, I'm just going to take a bit of a risk and defer med school. And then I went back to the US, met a few more investors, came back here, closed off the seed round. Luckily, closed off the seed round because it got to a point where I was like, oh, I don't know if this is actually go through or not. And I've already deferred med school. There goes a year of sitting around. But um, no, we got it closed. And suddenly, not only did Manuri have a medical degree underway, she also had a tech startup with $1.3 million in funding. Her reflections on raising money are in general both hilarious and insightful. So we're going to shift just momentarily to talk about her experience fundraising. And we'll start with how she looks back now on raising that seed round. I look back at it and I was like, that was so newbie. There's a level of like confidence that comes with not knowing stuff that I think I had. And it was like incredible level of naivety. But it also helped because in the Valley, people were bold and they take risks and you're meant to think that you can tackle these problems that people say can't be solved. So to a degree, I think that helped. I didn't even know what VCs were really or how to pitch them. I still remember these, like two of the pitches I had. One was with A16Z. Andreessen Horowitz going in there. I kind of had a vague idea when I did the pitch. And then I came out of it and I was speaking to people about it. And they're like, wow, they're a big deal. Like you should look them up. And that's when I read Hard Thing about Hard Things. And I was like, wow, Ben Horowitz, that's really, really cool. And the same thing with GGV. I ended up pitching Jenny Lee, who is a big deal, um, which I only realized afterwards. So I had some really interesting encounters that I didn't even realize the significance of some of the people until afterwards. So to a degree, I think that helped. But there is a component to fundraising that she wished you'd have known. And it's something that is just really hard to do. I think with capital raising, like knowing the art of capital raising would have been really nice. How to build FOMO, how to build competitive tension. I remember one of the VCs asking me, who else are you meeting with? And I just listed them all off and, you know, just hear all my cards. Like, And it's quite interesting because you learn how to build around and the experience teaches you that. But and I wish I kind of had that at the start. What's funny about this to me is that by the time we met Manuri for her Series A round, she had this skill in spades. Our investment in HealthMatch was the fastest investment we've ever done. And it's partly because she had a really firm deadline just one week away. Her wedding. I'll let her tell it. It was such an interesting time. I think when I actually met the team at SquarePeg and Paul and Tony, we were at Long Forms and we were meant to close the round in the following week because I had a, w- a wedding in two weeks and I was like, I can't manage both of this at the same time. I'm going to explode. And so I remember Kersek from UpGuard was like, hey, I think it'd be really great for you guys to connect. Paul is going to be in Sydney in two weeks. Do you want to chat? And I was like, look, we're about to close the series. Hey, can we maybe talk in a couple months time? And Paul touched base and he was like, why don't we jump on a phone call tomorrow? It was Paul and Tony. And I ended up just speaking about health match. And I was like, look, 
the round's probably done, but I'll share more about Health Match and what we're doing. And I learned a bit about Paul and instantly he saw some similarities between the marketplace that we were building with Health Match and how he sort of built Seek. And I thought, wow, like these guys have great insight into what we're building and understood what we're building straight away. Because oftentimes, you know, clinical trials, it seems really niche, right? Like, and it can be quite technical. And for some investors, it takes a while to get it, but they got it straight away. I think Paul was like, hey, if you give us some time, we'll try and be really deep and quick on our DD and understand your market and and go through that process. And we'll try accelerate it for you, but we can't guarantee that we're going to be in. And so I remember being like, oh, okay, do I do this or not? And I just got such a positive feeling from the conversation that I was like, you know, we'll extend it a week. Let's see how this goes. And I remember I met Tony and Tush, Paul and Ben in the office. They met the team, sat with me for more than half a day, diving in, asking all these questions. And I was super impressed because over the weekend, they'd done so much DD, trying to understand the market that we're working in. And the questions just showed a really deep understanding of what we were building. Lucky for us, Manuri agreed to let us lead her Series A. And so just days after we met, we invested. And then I got married. And we were doing long forms, I think, at rehearsal dinner, I remember. I was getting my hair done for it. And on the phone with our lawyers being like, hey, can we like wrap this up? I don't think it will ever get that hectic again doing Capri's, but it was fun. For founders raising their first round of capital, her advice now is really clear. Look for investors that fit into one of two buckets, domain experience or business building experience. So I think I have two things. I kind of, when I look at investors, I look at two aspects. One is their domain knowledge. How much do they understand healthcare or the pharma world? Or how much do they actually understand the business that we're building? Whether it's understanding that we're a marketplace and you know, poor with seek, that was a really clear sort of line there. And investors that can actually bring value to the table outside of just saying that they do, like so introductions that they can make, helping you hire team members and looking for talent. So I think I split it into those two domain knowledge and then knowledge of like the type of business that you're building. And particularly if it's the type of business that you're building, someone that's done it before is super helpful. But heading back to that moment where she just deferred med school with $1.3 million in the bank, what to do next had become Manuri's biggest decision. It was kind of like, what do I do now? Like I need to find engineers to actually build this because I'm not an engineer. And that was a bit intimidating. It's like, how do you interview for engineers? How do you find people that can build what you've envisioned and take it beyond prototype to actually execution? So Yeah, day one was kind of scary because it's like, okay, now I've got to go actually do what I'd planned to do. So after hiring our first engineers, it was a bit more clear. I was mapping out what the product will look like, exactly how we're going to tackle this problem. And then building it and launching at the end of January last year. And with a functioning platform, the problem that she had first come across in the lab and the solution that she just started to build out rapidly began validating itself in the most spectacular way. So we work with a number of big pharma companies and there are customers where we've been able to place patients into trials that they have struggled to find one patient in Australia. And that's because they've taken the traditional route of going to a random hospital site, which they've had a relationship with and hoping that that 
specialist would have the pool of patients that they're looking for, despite the fact that trials are becoming more and more tailored and complex and we're looking at personalized medicine and the criteria are becoming more challenging. So I think it's been really interesting to show these big pharma companies that we're able to actually find patients for trials in areas that they think are incredibly complex and difficult to find by just approaching it from a different aspect, which is a patient-first aspect. And it wasn't only pharma companies that were flooding the platform. People like you and me suddenly had access to a part of the medical process that had been the domain of well-connected clinicians or, sadly, extremely determined sick people. We just recently ticked over 10,000 user profiles on, on the platform, and that's across 300 different condition areas. So areas that we didn't even think would have high user populations like obesity, psoriasis, and our user base really reflects the conditions that exist in the general population. So it's, it's quite interesting seeing that from a growth perspective and knowing which areas to like double down in and focus on. With all of the companies we work with, generally when the product launches and customers start piling through the door, the question starts to get posed. How do we scale our operations? How do we scale up processes? And how should I, as the founder, scale to keep up with my business? Yeah, I think for me, the thing that I've really had to become better at is ruthless prioritization and knowing what things are needle movers. I guess in every startup or building a company at a fast pace, there are so many competing forces and things that you can focus priorities on. It's knowing what are the things that are actually going to make impact and focusing on it, making sure that you're really good at setting the goals and clearing the road so that your team can execute and do their job well. So that's something that I've had to like become good at and just, you know, scaling a team. Like we went from five people in January to 17 people, which I think is 3x the team size. So understanding you've brought on all this talent and people that are really good at what they do but how do you enable them to make the most impact? What helped Manuri the most is learning how to delegate effectively. One is knowing how to delegate so that you're not doing everything. Because I think as a founder, you start out and on day one, you're literally doing everything, right? And then as you scale, you're letting go of bits and pieces and it's like learning to do that effectively so that people are like enabled to do what they need to do within an organization. So I think learning to do that. And then the other thing is, I guess, understanding the best way to hire people and what to look for when interviewing. And I think finding really good talent and building a team culture that's awesome and seeing the people that we've brought on, it's great indicators to know what to look for. And it helps you in that sort of process of who do you want to join your company and who do you want to help set that initial culture because we're early days and everyone that joins has such an impact on, on the culture that we're building. We hear this so often from founders, and Manuri's take on hiring is pretty aligned to the theory that Paul Bassett laid out in the first episode of this podcast. I listened to Paul's podcast last night, and I, I love the breakdown of three areas, the horsepower, the experience, and the values. And I think for us, values is incredibly important. We're building a mission-driven company, right? Patients were never at the center of healthcare. We're building something which puts patients at the center of healthcare. And I think understanding that and understanding the mission is crucial and that people's values line up with that. 
So that's always the first thing I look for. And then, yeah, it's understanding the type of role that we're hiring for. And in most cases, it's horsepower. In most cases, someone that can jump in and, you know, thrive in an environment that's constantly changing and where we're moving at a thousand miles an hour. I do tend to like lean towards horsepower, but understand when experience is super important in certain roles. That's it for this week's episode. You can find more information on Manurian Healthmatch online at healthmatch.io. If you'd like to hear more stories about founders such as Manuri, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you'd like to help, leave us a five-star review. Otherwise, find us in all the regular places. 